Vint is the first fully transparent wine investment platform genuinely accessible to everyone. For less than $100, you can own SEC-qualified shares of the best wines in the world. The Vint Wine Investment Podcast offers up-to-date information on the world of wine and investing, as well as current perspectives on our collections and the wine markets in general. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Vint Wine Investment Podcast. My name is Billy Galenko, and I'm the head of wine here at Vint. Um, we are excited to have another episode for you guys. This one is exciting because it features our first interview. More on that in a moment. First, we're going to dive into some updates on our collections. Um, we have two collections live at the moment. Uh, the one that is most recent is our Japanese whiskey collection, the Karazawa 36 Views of Mount Fuji, a complete set. Uh, that launched on Wednesday, January 12th. Um, as of this recording, there are under a thousand shares left of that. So hop on it soon. Um, invest if you are interested because shares are going fast. The other collection we have open is the Rhone Valley collection. There are about 2000 shares left there as of recording. Um, again, this one features top wines from Cote Roti, Hermitage, and Chateauneuf de Pop. And we have actually some additional news on that that's recently come out with LiveX. Um, basically just more good news showing how strong the Rhone Valley has been in the wines over the past year. So the 2021 Rhone report came out and we saw that the share of the secondary market for Rhone wines rose from 3.4% in 2020 to 4.5% in 2021. So overall, the demand for the Rhone is there. Um, among that, demand we are seeing increased demand specifically for coat roti and hermitage wines the trade volume for these two wines reached multi-year highs with coat roti seeing its highest level since 2019 in terms of trade and hermitage's highest trade level since 2018 in terms of the top performers and the most traded wines overall the top five wines and the most traded wines overall were gigal's lala wines um, again, those are the ones that are predominantly featured in our collection. They make up a bulk of our Rhone collection. Um, so they took the top five spots in terms of trade volume. So there's a ton of demand out there and very little supply created each year just due to the sheer small size of the uh, vineyards that they come from. So again, the dynamics are looking good and very strong for the Rhone Valley as a whole. Now, let's transition over to our exciting news for today, our first interview. Um, is with Tempe Reichardt. She is a really interesting woman with a really long, fascinating career in wine. We had a great conversation touching on everything from her export business all the way up to her recent sale of ownership rights in North America to Gabriel Glass, the stemware company. So uh, we're excited to share this with you and hope you enjoy. All right, we are excited to welcome Tempe Reichardt to the podcast. Um, Tempe is a wine industry veteran. Uh, she's worked in many sectors in the wine industry, ranging from exporting California wines to Europe to being the North American head of an Austrian stemware company here in the United States. Um, so without further ado, welcome, Tempe. Thanks, Billy. Really glad to be with you. Before we get into your work background, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what got you into wine and a little bit more about you. Absolutely. So um, I, without, you know, 
revealing too much. When I was a mere youth, I went to work for my uh, oldest brother who had a fine wine store in Western Michigan. He was way ahead of himself. And he installed his little sister, who at the time I was 16 years old, um, in the back room pulling corks with the task of writing the um, shelf talkers for the store. So I was very privileged to be able to taste some of the world's greatest wines at, uh, at an early age, really developed a taste for great wine. And as you know, Billy, there's no going back, right? So um, I had went off and had a career as a political reporter in Washington, D.C., but as a young journalist, I discovered I really couldn't afford my wine habit, if you will, and eventually um, segued from D.C., drove my car across country, landed in San Francisco, and uh, have been in the wine industry in California ever since. So um, started out working for a winery, uh, went on to found my own uh, export business. I exported really the top California wines of the day to Europe and was based there for many years. Um, and that ultimately led me to meet Rene Gabriel, who is the gentleman who founded Gabriel Glass. And that is sort of the end of my uh, most recent wine industry story. Um, Gabriel Glass is a stunning universal wine glass that has really um, hit the market to rave critical reviews. And uh, I just recently sold, I owned the distribution rights for North America, and I successfully sold the business to a gentleman named Jonah Beer, who many people in the wine industry know and are you know extremely fond of Jonah. He um, has emerged out of Frog's Leap Winery, where he was VP for many years and is now at the helm of Gabriel Glass. And I'm really thrilled about that. And I'm continue to work with him as a consultant. So it's been a very interesting career, starting in a wine store in Western Michigan, going to Europe for many years and returning back to California with this absolutely glorious glass. And here I am talking to you. Yeah, that's it's such an interesting, interesting route. Every every time I found when you talk to people working in wine, they all come about come back to it or come to it in some some unique way, whether they, they started when they were young and they fell into it or they've kind of meandered their way in. So it's always interesting to hear. Um can you tell us a little bit how you've seen the industry change over the years? I think, you know, obviously maybe even just starting with importing california wines to europe i i know i mean i think a lot of people in the industry probably know the judgment of paris but to be on on the ground and kind of seeing the repercussions that that change in reputation had and um if you could touch on that and kind of what you've seen in the wine industry since then right well um when i started exporting california wine to europe and i i moved to europe at that moment in time um, the wineries I worked with were owned by the founders of the wineries, right? So Sandra McKeever, owner of Matanzas Creek, for example, um, 
Joel and uh, Joel Peterson and Reed Foster, the founders of Ravenswood. Those wineries and many others have uh, sort of been sold off to large corporate entities or uh, large private equity, um, you know, investor groups. And so I had the privilege back in the day of working with the founding winemakers, the founding winery owners, and it was um, a source of tremendous pride for me to take these incredible wines to Europe. And <clears throat> it, I did arrive in Europe <clears throat> sort of at just the right moment in time, I believe, for California wine. It was just, it was post Judgment of Paris. And so the wine critics in Europe and the wine aficionados were suddenly completely aware of um, the fact that that California was producing stunning wines. And so when I came with a portfolio of the top wines, it really did turn heads. And in fact, Rene Gabriel, who is the guy behind Gabriel Glass, was at the time one of the top wine critics in all of Europe, writing in the German language. And we became very good friends at that point in time. So this is this is the um, 1990s. So I'm I'm dating myself here, um, but it it was a moment in time where suddenly California was on the map for collectors, and with that there was sort of this growing interest in New World wine as a category. Right. So we're talking Chile, Argentina, Australia, what have you. Suddenly, all of Europe was waking up to, oh, gee, you know, outside of France and Italy and Spain, et cetera, there are fabulous wine producing regions. So that was um, it was very exciting. And uh, again, you know, it was a, a source of great pride to bring such beautiful wines to um, a market where they thought they knew it all, right? And um, changed opinions for sure. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know, m- many people. I mean, in Europe, I, I, California is still continuing to make its name for for many people here in the U.S. It's hard to believe that Napa, you know, ever needed a kind of an intro or needed more respect. Um, can you touch on briefly what you think is when it goes around? defining a fine wine or a collectible wine, what kind of makes a wine desirable to collectors or consumers, um, especially maybe in a, a new market when it's first trying to make a name for itself? Right. Well, I, I think that's the, you know, the million dollar question. And there's a lot of sort of magic that goes into uh, making a great wine collectible. And first of all, of course, it starts with the winemaking. But it's also a lot about how um, the market perceives the wine and what the press is saying about the wine, press and top sommeliers, right? I have definitely seen the power of the press over all these years that I've been in the wine industry. I was, um, you know, of course, close to uh, some of the top wine writers in Europe, including Stephen Spurrier and Rene Gabriel to this day. Um, And I saw what those guys 
uh, could do in in making the world aware of great wine. Um, it goes beyond that, of course, because it's all about marketing and hospitality, how you greet your customer, um, that sort of thing. So it's it's a little elixir, I think, of um, marketing, PR, and a lot of really great skill going into the winemaking and, you know, the love of presenting that wine to the market. Nice. Yeah, that makes a lot of a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I think something you touched on earlier also probably plays a big impact. And and I'd like to get your sense on um, timing as a whole in terms of, you know, for certain wines, it's a, a process, but also from a, a larger business context. I mean, we we, we are a young company, a, a startup here, and we believe the timing is right for what we're doing. But can you touch on how you've seen timing, um, you know, lead to success or potential failure in um, your business life? Uh, yeah, well, I, I've definitely touched on it in that I arrived in Europe just as the reality of California wine was um, becoming real to European wine aficionados. And so that, you know, it was it was kind of a combination of luck and timing, quite frankly, um, which I think is is relevant to almost any business so much about uh, you know, success has to do with luck and timing. Certainly brilliance helps, but luck and timing is, is key. And so I, you know, that was a, a clear example of it. And I think as I'm looking at the state of the market now, there's a lot of young producers um, from all over the world who are doing really, really exciting things. And there's a lot of innovation. Um, there's a lot more sophistication in the industry, in the global industry now than there was back when I launched my export business. So I think there's um, wine producers have a lot more tools and a lot more knowledge uh, to go about their art and their craft. And so I think with time, winemakers have gained advantage, um, you know, learning from prior experience. So I think the I'm seeing some just incredible wines being produced around the world from markets that, you know, what, like Slovakia? Yes, there are some nice wines being made in Slovakia. So there are new markets emerging. I think it's very exciting. There's a lot of information sharing. There are marketplaces where people used to come together in a pre-COVID day, you know, to learn about wine and, and taste together and share information. Those days will return for sure. Um, but I think, you know, it's a global market now and um, a lot of exciting things going on. Yeah, I think that's also an interesting segue to to hearing more about why you think the timing was right when you started working with Gabriel Glass um, with their the universal glass model and how I think now even today it's more more relevant and useful than than it's ever been um, with all these different styles, whether it be skin contacts coming from Eastern Europe or any traditional wine styles. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Well, yes, and that is that's a fascinating story. So um, Renee Gabriel asked me to introduce the glass into North America. And I got to say, initially, I was the number one skeptic because he he was telling me about his glass. He was on a trip to California and we got together and he was describing the glass to me. Didn't have any um, samples with him. And I, at that moment in time, had cupboards full of another brand that produces varietal specific stemware and really promotes the concept of varietal specific stemware. So I was sort of hook, line, and sinker into the the necessity of having a variety of different glasses um, to enjoy different styles of wine. So I asked Renee um, to send me some samples. So he returned back to Switzerland and he he you know sent some samples through, and I found hook, line, and sinker. Absolutely, that was the glass. I just gravitated to it naturally every night. I realized at that moment that it was going to be a hard sell to go out into the marketplace. And, okay, this was 2013, right? So I knew it was going to be difficult because we had been um, ingrained in this uh, marketing concept of needing a lot of different glasses um, for different varieties. So I went out into the marketplace and the first thing that I did was really put it, it put the glass in the hands of winemakers and friends of mine who own wineries and hands down, each one of them said, wow, this glass really performs, you know, let me give you an order. So at that moment, I realized that the way I was going to um, develop the market was to put the glass in people's hands, that talking about it wasn't going to be convincing. So I very early on participated in a lot of both trade and consumer tastings, got the glass out to charity events around Napa and Sonoma, Um, very proud to support a number of charitable causes. Well, the audience here in, in Napa and Sonoma, of course, they're all wine industry insiders. So effectively, the glass went viral. And I've, I found, you know, and again, this is just sort of instinct that by putting it in people's hands, that it was the most powerful marketing possible. To talk about it is one thing. To let people drink out of it is another. So slowly but surely over the course of these years, people have come around to the concept of, oh, let's simplify our lives. We don't need all those glasses. And let's enjoy um, drinking out of a glass that truly performs. Uh, Gabriel Glass is designed to fully express the wine that's served in it, any style of wine. And thirdly, it's a beautiful vessel. So people just really started to to fall in love with it. And Rene Gabriel told me he had never seen anything like it, that people fall in love with this glass. And lo and behold, he is absolutely right. And I have seen it time and time again. And I think people are, um, you know, sort of like I was describing some minutes ago about 
we've got innovation, we've got knowledge, we've got, you know, the young winemakers are nimble, even old winemakers are becoming more nimble because they're seeing the results of pivoting. Um, I think we're seeing a change in the marketplace where people are gravitating, both aficionados and consumers are gravitating towards this one glass concept and to a glass that truly performs. So it's it's been very, very fun and very exciting. And um, Jonah, Jonah Beer is just going to do a fabulous job um, leveraging the, the platform that has been created. So a um, lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah, I know it's been um, my go-to glass for a number of years now. But of course, I I heard from industry articles. I think it was probably some sommelier or somebody recommended it to me. Um, so yeah, once, once you go, it's hard to go back for sure. Um, I, we're, we might end up, um, going a little over, but I, I have to ask, did he ever explain how he came up with either that shape or like what inspired him to start? Cause you, you hear, you know, the other glass companies too, and you just imagine they're just making glasses a long time. Cause you can see all the other types of glasses they sell. And Gabriel glass is so focused on, on this distinct shape, whether it be the standard or the the um the higher glass there um yeah. hand blown here yeah so yes absolutely and and just to clarify for the listeners um we make one universal stemmed glass in two different styles there's a blown glass it's called the gold edition which is a rare commodity because it is a handmade item um and then there is uh the standard glass which is, um, it's a machine molded glass. And so it is a produced manufactured glass. They both perform in the sa- exactly the same way. Um, and th- listeners have to visualize this. The base of the glass, the bowl of the glass at the bottom is broader than at the top. So the concept is that the wine is sort of gently decanted in the glass and with the broader base, it allows for the wine to have more surface to air contact in the glass and flavors and aromas emerge in the glass. And then our, uh, the co- more conical shape at the lip allows for, it acts as a sort of aroma driver. Um, it focuses and drives the aromas. So for winemakers who are really trying to get the nuances of their wine, it's it's a fabulous tool. And for sommeliers who you know want to sell more wine at their restaurant, people just really enjoy drinking out of this glass. Um, but to answer your question of how Renee came up with the shape, it's a fantastic story. Um, first of all, Renee is a super guy. He's, he's larger than life, has a, has a electric personality. Um, so the way he tells the story is that he, first of all, he was writing a book and he needed, he was going to be tasting thousands of wine for his research. He wanted one vessel as an equal measure for every wine he was going to be tasting for his research. Went out into the marketplace, tried to find the glass, couldn't find it. So he was just mulling on this. What, you know, what glass is going to work for me? And as he tells the story, he was asleep. 
he woke up in the middle of the night and it was like this eureka moment. It's like, whoa, this is it. He got up, got out of bed, went to his desk and he did a line drawing of the glass. He's like, yep, that's it. And went back to bed. He um, proceeded to go out and he, of course, knows the leading glass manufacturers in Europe and, you know, family in particular, and went to them and said, can you make 48 glasses shaped like this for me? I need it for my research. And they laughed at him and said, well, first of all, the universal glass concept is totally contrary to our philosophy. And secondly, uh, do you have any idea how expensive it is to develop a prototype, just a prototype. So he was undaunted by their rejection and went out and basically found um, a gentleman, an Austrian gentleman, who is uh, sort of a mastermind behind um, glass production in all of Europe, went to this fellow and said, can you make 48 glasses shaped like this for me? And he said, well, he laughed. And he said, well, of course I can, but do you have any idea how expensive it is to develop a prototype? So with that, Rene was so convinced that he was on to something that he, he formed a business to um, uh, afford the research and development. And they spent two years with many, many different prototypes you know, working on getting the exactly correct dynamics of the glass. And after two years, they launched Gabriel Glass on the marketplace in Europe um, to initial tremendous success. And shortly thereafter, that's when he came to me and said, okay, now we're ready for North America. So long and short of it, it was just his instinct. And, um, Turns out his instinct instinct seems to be pretty pretty right on. Wow! Yeah, no, that's it's it's really interesting that it came from a person who is tasting a lot rather than somebody assuming what um, wine drinkers may want. You know, so that's a that's a really interesting uh, angle. Yeah, definitely. He he has an incredible palate. He's authored many books and. It was really one of still contributes to various publications in Europe. And, uh, you know, he just wanted a glass that performed and he created it. Yeah. Well, uh, that's, that's fascinating. It's kind of, um, kind of our aim here, here at Vent too, where we're trying to create a platform more based on what we've been hearing um, investors want over time, rather than um, just the traditional model, kind of the same uh-huh. way that he created yeah. a new glass. So. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so as you mentioned, uh, Jonah Beer purchased the, the company here. Do you know of any um, any plans for it coming up? Or do you guys have any any big sets for anything for 2022 or anything you want to touch on? Well, um, I will leave that to Jonah to describe his plans. Uh, but what I do know is that um, he has a very long reach and that this glass will get broader distribution throughout North America with him at the helm. And um, he is, he just took over the business on, uh, we closed on December 30th. So we had a great new year's celebration and um, we're both really excited about it. He's, he, he, 
he's just a super guy. And I know that he's going to do amazing things for the brand. And I think he would be a great guest for a future podcast because he can tell you where he's going to go with the glass. Oh, awesome. Well, that's, yeah, we've, we just got in contact with him today. Um, yeah. And it's, um, we can identify, I guess, with the uh, being, you know, having the, the behemoth in the room and trying to establish ourselves um, as the next up and then and showing our quality. So I think we're going to continue those conversations with him as well. And um, yeah, we're really excited for next year. Well, thank you so much for um, your time today, Tempe. Um, you know, I think um, the learn- it's really interesting for me to hear the background of Gabriel Glass and then your background in wine in general. Um, so thanks again for the time. I appreciate it. Absolutely delighted to be with you and very excited about your venture and uh, look forward to watching what you guys do. So all the best to you. Hi, everybody. This is Nick King, co-founder and CEO at Vint. I hope you've had a great week. Uh, We had a really good week with the launch of our Japanese Whiskey 36 Views of Mount Fuji collection. Really cool collection. Um, Saw a ton of demand and yeah, another successful collection launch at at Vint. So uh, one thing that I want to talk about today, I've gotten really um, interested in creating more content around the financial side of wine investing, how the macro environment, things that are happening in the stock or bonds market um, could affect wine as an asset. I think that's one thing that I can bring to um, Vint and just the broader alternative industry, which is the background in traditional um, equities investing, the ability to um elaborate on what is happening in the economy, in the markets, and how uh, those may cause ripples in other markets. Um, so one that I, I dove into this past week is is rising interest rates. Um, so since 2008, the Fed has really been on an aggressive um, mandate to buy bonds and other assets known as quantitative easing, um, as well as slashing interest rates to to near zero. Um, They did this to stimulate the economy after 2008. There's been one time where they tried to raise rates, but they um, subsequently have lowered and now rates uh, remain near near zero. So um, that that environment is one that... uh, people think is unlikely to continue forever. Who knows? Um, I'm not predicting or or forecasting anything, but I I read the Fed's minutes. Um, They have eight or so meetings each year um, to discuss what their policy is going to be going forward. And they mentioned a few things such as rate increases coming sooner than expected, Economic growth has been really strong, um, uh, honestly, surprisingly strong is what they had said. They're going to take a more normal um, policy uh, in the in the future, and inflation is is still a cause for concern. They dropped the the term transitory, which they had used in the past, um, 
And with with all of that being said, there are certainly things that could happen um, in in the market if if rates are going to increase. Um, and I guess first, like, why are they going to increase? Basically, the Fed wants to um, keep things normalized. They don't want them too bad or or too good. And you've had assets, um, <laughs> really like NFTs or um, other speculative investments, boom. And the Fed has looked at that as well as broader economy, the the S&P and equities market, um, and said, okay, it might be getting too too strong. So if they raise rates, um, there's I mean, a number of things that could happen. Um, one, people generally look um, at the stock market as um, one, directly between bonds, like it becomes relatively less attractive. However, if you think about the main driver of the stock market, that is corporate earnings. So corporate earnings in a higher interest rate environment are going to be lower because people have to pay more money on their debt or companies need to pay more money on their debt. Second would be bondholders. And then anybody who is um, has been benefiting from really, really inexpensive debts who has a lot of leverage right now, for example, real estate investors. I think those those three categories are all, um, in the past, have been negatively affected from, from rate increases. However, um, you do have winners in times of rising interest rates. Banks, if you think about how banks make money, they take your money, they charge you or they pay you a very low interest rate and then they charge someone else a higher interest rate and they earn a margin on that. Um, so the higher the rate they're able to charge for people who are borrowing money, the better for their profit margins. Um, US dollar in the past has increased if you think about broadly um, in terms of the macro economy across the world. Um, people in a higher rate environment, there's going to be more foreign investment into the U.S., increasing demand for the dollar. And then alternative assets um, like wine. Um, so wine has returned 8.5% annually for the last 121 years, um, while showing a low correlation to traditional financial assets. Um, it's provided stability in many different um economic times. So um, there's winners, there's losers. It's hard to say um, exactly what will happen in the future, but it's something that um, people tend to keep in mind when they're thinking about how they position their portfolio for an environment that may change. Um, if you like some of this deeper financial content, I'm happy to talk more about it and once we roll out a, a new blog, there will be plenty of it living on there. But have a great weekend. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint Wine Investment Podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. 
past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risk to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.